Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. Oh boy, this took a while. See, today we're going to be illuminated by strontium-19 and other nice little radioactive elements. I will be talking about one of the more curious production enterprises in all of ex-Soviet Union, and modern-day Russia as well. And, like I said, this um, took a while to make, because once you start getting into the insanity... It just keeps on giving. Out radiation, that is. This is going to be full with uh, pretty terrible, kind of bad, nuclear arsenal jokes. So what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about the Mayak Production Association. Or, Prozvozvesenli Abhijinye Mayak, or just known usually as Kombinat Mayak. Mayak stands for Lighthouse, by the way. And that, that's one of the biggest nuclear facilities in the Russian Federation. Housing a reprocessing plant. It's surrounded by a bunch of settlements. It's nearby a chemical factory, which will, you know, become important a bit later. This place is where the Soviet nuclear sword was being forged. That's a nice little epithet which is often used to speak about Mayak. As per usual, you know, as most of the tank factories in the Soviet Union were hidden as basically kind of tractor factories and stuff like that, so was this one. It was known also as Ozersk, or the Lake Town, or Chelyabinsk 40, or Chelyabinsk 65, and it's located in the Ural Mountains. And as one of the employees there said, and is quoted on Lurkmor, quote, So, we were not afraid of radiation, we were afraid only of the KGB. And you'll understand why this is oh so very sadly true extremely soon. The trick is that this was the place where all of the nuclear bombs were made. Well, most of them anyways. Yeah, he led the Soviet nuclear bomb project. He was the one who directed the construction of the Mayak plutonium plant in these southern Urals between 1945 to 1948, in obviously great hurry and secrecy, as part of the USSR's atomic bomb project. 
For fun times and glorious, glorious awesomeness, over 40,000 Gulag prisoners and prisoners of war from World War II built the factory and, well, the closed nuclear city of Ozersk, called at the time by its classified postal code 40. Five nuclear reactors were built to produce plutonium, which was then refined and machined for weapons use. Later, the plant came to specialize in reprocessing spent nuclear fuel from nuclear reactors and plutonium from decommissioned weapons. Once production began, the engineers there very quickly ran out of underground space for storage of high-level radioactive waste. But that never really stopped anyone, because obviously, rather than actually cease the production of plutonium until a new underground waste storage tanks could be built, between 1949 and 1951, Soviet managers dumped 46 million cubic meters of toxic chemicals, including 3.2 million curries of high-level radioactive waste, into the Techa River a slow-moving hydraulic system that bogs down in swamps and lakes. Mmm, just beautiful. As many as 40 villages with a combined population of about 28,000 people lined near the river at the time. For 24 of them, the Techa was a major source of water, out of whom 23 were eventually evacuated. In the 45 years afterwards, about half a million people in the region have been irradiated in one or more of the accidents exposing them up to 20 times the radiation suffered by the Chernobyl disaster victims outside of the plant itself. Investigators, even in 1951, found communities along the river highly contaminated. On discovery, soldiers immediately evacuated the first downriver village of Metlino, population 1200, where radiation levels measured 3.5 to 5 rads per hour, and at that dose, people could get a lifetime external dose in less than a week. Fun times. During the following decade, 10 additional communities were resettled from the river, but the largest community, Muslomovo, remained. Researchers investigating residents of Muslomovo annually in what has become a four-generation living experiment of people living among chronic low doses of radioactivity. Large samples showed the villagers took in cesium-137, ruthenium-106, strontium-90, woo, my favorite one, and iodine-131 internally and externally. These isotopes had deposited themselves nicely and beautifully in organs, flesh, and tasty bone marrow. Mm-mm. Villagers complained of a range of illnesses and symptoms, chronic fatigue, sleep, and fertility problems, weight loss, and increased hypertension. The frequency of birth defects and complications at birth were up to three times greater than normal. In 1953, the doctor examined 597 of 28,000 exposed people and found around that 200 of them had clear cases of radiation poisoning. And I started all this research because a um, weird meme that um, I found out on Russian internets. And this was intentionally intended to be originally only about the 1957 Kishchim disaster, which at the time was the worst nuclear accident in history. And even currently, as this was kept secret for about 30 years, it's third in severity, surpassed only by Chernobyl in Ukraine and Fukushima in Japan. It's rated six of the seven level INES scale. So, yeah, then uh, I found out other things. For starters, when I was researching this, found out that another accident, well, in Steam Mayak, have occurred in September 2017, which also increased radiation stuff, so I had to add that one in. And then I found out about the accident of 1968. And then I stumbled upon a list of uh, accidents in Mayak, and uh, let's see now. Mm-hmm. 15th of March, 1953. Critically accident, a contamination of plant personal cured. 13th of October, 1955, rupture process. 21th of April, 1957, critical criticality achieved. 
then there is the Kishim disaster, which I'll speak about later, in the 29th of September, 1957. Then another one happened in the 2nd of January, 1958. Then another one on 12th of May, 1960. Another one on 26th of February, 1962. Another one on 9th of July, 1962. December, 1965. December, 1968. February, 1976. February, 1984. November, 1990. July, 1993. February, 1993. December, 1993. February, 1994. March, 1994. July, 1994. August, 1994. March, 1995. September, 1995. December, 1995. July, 1995. Another time, September 1995, October 1996, November 1996, August 1997, October 1997, September 1998, and then in summer 2003, then in June 2007, then in October 2007, then in October 2008, and finally to September 2017, and finally in January 2018. This might have been a bit annoying, but this is what's going on here. There is a reason. Well, I gave you the quote from the person working there. The people there are no longer even afraid of radiation. And that's the thing. If you look at the kind of a radioactivity map around the place, you understand that it's used often as a kind of a rocket testing silo, where the radiation is often spread in kind of these direct lines which resemble birds' feathers off of the closed town of Chelyabinsk 65. And it's kind of weird, because... Well, yeah, that's what you get when you have a nice little rocket testing side there. Oh, and by the way, Mayak is still active uh, as of 2021, and it serves as a reprocessing site for spent nuclear fuel. Today, the plant, however, makes just tritium and radioisotopes. Kind of um, awesome. And uh, in recent years, a lot of people have claimed, good sources, that uh, the plant actually reprocesses waste from foreign nuclear reactors, which has given a rise a bit to... Um, you know, tiny bit of a controversy. But, well, something this disastrous in basically the Russian nuclear weapons program is something that I just had to go through in a lot of detail, and we'll look at the three biggest accidents, namely the one in 1957, then the one in 1994, and then we're going to be talking about the cloud of radiation from 2017. But, wow, strap in, have your radiation suits on, this is going to be a bit of a wild ride. Now, about the 1957 nuclear disaster. Understand that basically none of us, not including everyone here on this side of the Cold War, was even supposed to know anything about it. And if not for a series of kind of untimely revelations, we probably still wouldn't. It's called the Kishim disaster, and before the mid-1980s, the town's official location, obviously, wasn't even designated on the map. That is what you get if you live in Chelyabinsk 65. <laughs> Basically, only the diseased winds blowing north in the aftermath gave any indication it was there. See, in the early morning hours of September 29th, in 1957, a tank containing nuclear weapons waste exploded on the grounds of the Kombinat Mayak. Which, well, like I said, Russia's primary spent nuclear fuel at a processing center, which is still in operation. The fallout, eventually, from this specific incident, coated more than 200 towns and villages and exposed about 272,000 people to radiation. A small portion of which, like I said, 28,000, were quietly evacuated over the subsequent two years. 
Governmental data of Russia now indicate that as many as 400,000 people today continue to struggle with continued contamination from the accident, made worse by a legacy, inadequate waste handling practices and ongoing official negligence. Oh, such beauty. In the time since, the people who live near Mayak, quote, have become a sort of radioactive waste themselves, said Nadezhda Kutyapova, a long-time lawyer for residents of the area, in her comments to Greenpeace. Like its two younger brothers, and this is a really nice source that I have here from a Russian Greenpeace-oriented site, ecological site, and it just goes into beautiful detail about all these other incidents, but still, it's fun that they call Fukushima and Chernobyl the younger brothers. The Kishtim explosion was obviously born in secrecy and nurtured by kind of a naivete and fear of the KGB. Moscow suppressed the details of the accident for about three decades. The first peep of it came in 1976, when a dissident scientist named Zhores Medvedev was the first to publish his suspicions that the government wasn't telling the whole story. The deception was not kind, and he was kicked out of the country. You can say that he was a, you know, bit lucky with that. Later, the circumstances by which an official version of the accident emerged were almost accidental. The Soviet government included details about it in a report on Chernobyl that it submitted to the United Nations in 1986, which finally blew the cover. Moscow's accounting of the disaster has by now taken on a shopworn ring. A failed cooling system and an uncontrolled reaction within a stew of radium and plutonium caused it all to overheat and explode. Assertions that scientists plotting through the dim prehistory of the atomic age should be forgiven for not knowing any better. Even the Kishchim cleanup was sold to terrified locals with euphemisms and misdirection. A post-war population of mostly women and children were given rags and mops and no protective gear whatsoever to sop up what they were told was the mess from a coal boiler explosion in the village of Kishchim. The actual incident happened a few kilometers down the road in the closed city of Ozersk. And uh, here I'm going to switch over to another report on this whole situation from one Glushara Ismagilova, who lived in the village of Tatarskaya Karabalochka. And this is a kind of a weird story, but again, I think this kind of needs to be told. Quote, By 1957, for the people who lived there, who lived next to the river, yeah, it was a bit late for them to switch on anything else. And even more, basically explained to them in what sort of an ass they're all located now. Basically, because they lived next to the complex S, where for 10 years already, for tens of years, a chemical factory was operating, and, well, the locals didn't even feel the difference at the beginning, because, well, their river was dirty anyways, and people were having cancer and were ill all the time. So, at the beginning, the radiation was like, eh, you know, just dump in even more garbage into your surrounding environment. For your average median Soviet clerk, the lives of the Tatar Kolkhoz people under a plutonium factory, you know, really not that important of the life of other Kolkhoz person next to any other huge Soviet factory. Basically, you know, everything's dirty anyways, and people are getting ill and dying, and eh, no one cares, they're just people from Tatar people, some sort of peasants or something, who cares, they're not even party members, eh, that's basically that. On the other side, there was a unique precedent which allowed to experiment among by the party members on living people about the subject of, hey, you know, how will we um, pull through this nuclear winter thing 
yeah, you know, we'll just test it on live people, gonna be fun. And uh, apparently, again, continuing by, by Glushar, Ismagilovna, the explosion added a lot of interesting things in the lives of, at that point, Chelyabinsk 65. For example, there was a strong tradition after that that you should take off your shoes before you enter any apartment. Not just before you enter a room or something. No, you couldn't even enter another person's apartment without removing your shoes because you can't take in your military atom from the street. With a nice little added joke that, yeah, we have enough of ours already. I mean, we live here. It's just, you know, it's dust everywhere. Who cares? Just drumming in more. Also, at the same time, the people stated that all the money in the town also were dirty. And interestingly enough, the less valuable the money was, the more kind of was spread around, and the more it was used, so it touched air more and more, and, well, thus it became even dirtier. But the quote that made me use this source was the following, and it's a bit of a sad one. I'm not even going to make stupid jokes about it, because this made me look into other accidents further in. Quote, I was nine and we were studying at school. And, you know, one day they just gathered us together and stated that, well, kids, help the kolkhoz people to help with the harvest and gathering of the crops. You know, it was okay because we were used to go and work with the kolkhoz people in September because that's what usually kids did in the Soviet Union. However, it was strange that, you know, in place of actually gathering the harvest, they told us to, well, pile it into the ground and cover it with dirt. And, you know, there were milizioneri, the KGB cops standing all around us, they surrounded us so that no one could run away. And in our class, most of the students died of cancer afterwards, and those who remained, well, all of them are very sick, and all of my ex-classmate women are basically infertile now. That's Glushara Ismagilova, and, uh, yeah. I would like to say that I'm, um, I'm surprised by such cynicism, but that would be a lie. At this point, neither should you. Cutting on from our ecology sources. See, that's the thing. The Soviet fake news name stuck with the Ozirk and everything, and the Kishtin. Well, the Kishtin has come to connote in the years since has only grown in danger and magnitude. For decades, after Mayak was founded to produce plutonium for the Soviet atomic bombs, it dumped and treated radioactive waste directly into the nearby Techa River. Russian regulators say the plant stopped its dumps in 2004 after a lawsuit on the criminal charges unseated the plant's scandal tar director, because by that point there had been so many disasters that it was insane. But various investigations by environmental nonprofits have caused doubt on that claim ever since. Russia's state nuclear corporation, Rosatom, meanwhile refuses to respond to specific charges of ongoing dumps, instead issuing general statements that Mayak operates within environmental guidelines, and that the Techa River complies with sanitary standards. Indeed, because the river is already so contaminated by radiation and various chemical waste, establishing further contamination might seem, well, merely an academic trivial task, really. To follow the river's northerly flow is to draw a kind of a morbid map of mortality and disease. Record rates of chromosomal abnormalities, birth defects, and cancers vastly higher than the Russian average mark each new village it passes through. It was only in 2008, more than half a century after the dumps began, that Rosatom undertook to evacuate some of the rural villages supping on the radioactive bilge, but only partially 
and only half-heartedly. The population of Mulisumovo, the village long bearing the brunt of the contamination, was resettled a mere two kilometers upriver. People in the town were issued cards, identifying them as residents of an irradiated zone, entitling them to certain, well, lusterless perks. But even getting those benefits through the local courts turned out to be a dangerous proposition. Kutepova, whose long-battled Chelyabinsk officialdom on behalf of Mayak's afflicted, became an irritant the government grew tired of hearing. In 2015, the Ministry of Justice declared her legal aid group Planeta Nadezhd, or the Planet of Hopes, a foreign agent. A title that, well, pretty sure you listeners of my show have grown to know and love, and you understand that uh, it's not a fun assignment. In the coming months after that, Russia's official television stations began grinding up a panic that she herself might actually be a spy. She had to flew the country for Paris later that year. Many residents of Mushulimovo and other contaminated villages haven't gone anywhere at all. When the time for the move came, bureaucrats took issue with their paperwork or their medical records, dooming them over clerical errors. Others decided that what Rosatom was offering was quite much a raw deal, banning homes their families lived in for generations for paltry sums to rebuild in tiny crowded apartments were judged by many to be a poor trade. After all, well, all of the places they were supposed to live in were basically just as irradiated and devastated anyways. Regardless of where they live right now, however, they continue to be visited by doctors who keep detailed records of their decay, because like I said, nice opportunity for an experiment on living people after all. Those who live along the river, they say, have cancer at rate 3.6 times higher than the national average and suffered 25 times more from incidents of birth defects than in other places in the country. Miscarriages continue to climb, and children carried to term are born with malformed limbs and organs. Many of the remaining adults suffer from lymph node swelling so severe that their words are unintelligible to visiting physicians. The strontium-90 flowing through the river, the doctors have concluded, has settled into the bones of the population. Even in the shadow of these unsettling facts, it falls to Mayak to digest much of the crystal left by the Soviet nuclear legacy. Nearly all of the spent fuel from Russia's now defunct Soviet nuclear submarine fleet made its way to Mayak, and saved Russia's northern ports and western Europe from a catastrophe of another kind. More recently, a decades-long pile-up of the Soviet Navy's nuclear fuel left to rot at Andreeva Bay has begun to wend its way for reprocessing at Mayak suggesting that the once-doomed plant might be able to atone for past sins. But too much of Mayak's history, a history written in the all of these illnesses and deformities of its witnesses, yeah, it has all come to light only by accident and, well, random things. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. At Rosatom, I think I was a bit of complete transparency to the people who live there. And, well, everything that's happening after all, because all of this is just bizarre and weird. And this is just the first of all the incidents that we'll be talking about. Because, like I said, I started out with this one, and oh boy, oh boy, it went, um, went weird from then on out. And now I have to apologize to you, because we will be getting a bit more scientific here, then again, I have to give you the pure academical perspective of everything that's happened as well. And for this, I will be using an article from the Journal of Radiological Protection from 31st of August 2017 called Consequences of the Radiation Accident at the Mayak Production Association in the 1957 by a bunch of scientists. Most of them, I don't know the names of the leading ones are A.V. Akleyev, L.U. Kristina, and, and others. So it's weird, but it's very academical take on this because I've been I've been joking about all the situation, but I want to quote this so that you people who are more educated than me actually understand what actually happened. Now, this article uses certain terms that I would like to explain first. They use the term EURT, which is called East Urals Radioactive Trace, which basically is the population of the radioactively contaminated territories which is to the northeast of Mayak, which was formed as a result of this incident. And like I said, if you look at these radiological maps, you'll see that it looks kind of like a feathers of a bird. And there's also a URCRM, or the Clinic of the Urals Research Center for Radiation Medicine. This article observes, like I said, that there was, well, right now it's called... <clears throat> From 1957 until now, the population of the EURT has been subjected to medical examination and treatment in the URCRM in the city of Chelyabinsk. Moreover, URCRM staff study the behavior of the radionuclide distribution in the environment, migration paths through uh, trophic chains, and intakes by human beings and animals. A.K.A. yeah, we're gonna take a look at how you people actually survive nuclear winter. Always fun. But all of this is interesting because... Despite the tragedy of the accident, they do provide a, some very useful information on what was going on there and what happened and, well, what happens if you just live in such a terrible, terrible place, basically. But first of all, they also provide a very interesting, I think, scientific account on the accident itself so that you understand how exactly it happened. I will be skipping over some some data here 
I'll be reading the ones that I can actually, you know, read audibly, because there's a lot of tables and, and figures in this document, and, you know, that really doesn't translate itself that well to the audio format, so sorry about that, but this at least is the most comprehensive account on, well, like I said, what exactly happened during this Mayak incident. And this will be a bit uh, bland, so probably some, well, radiation jokes inside there, as at least that's a bit fun. Starting in the earliest period of Mayak PA activities, ah, call me that Mayak, you gotta love the lighthouse, Quote, large amounts of liquid, high-level radioactive waste from the radiochemical facility were placed into long-term controlled storage in metal tanks installed in concrete vaults. Each full tank contained 70 to 80 tons of radioactive waste, mainly in the form of nitrate compounds. The tanks were water-cooled and equipped with temperature and liquid-level measurement devices. And here we get to the accident, because in 29th of September 1957, as a result of a failure of the temperature control system of tank number 14, cooling water delivery became <clears throat> insufficient and radioactive decay caused an increase in temperature, um, <clears throat> followed by a complete evaporation of the water and the nitrate salt deposits were heated to 330 to 350 degrees Celsius. Then the thermal explosion of the tank 14 followed. It happened at 4.20 p.m. local time, by the way. About 90% of the total activity settled in the immediate vicinity of the explosion site with distances less than 5 kilometers, primarily in the form of coarse particles. Oh, and by the way, at the time of the explosion, um, as this article states, the activity of the waste contained, that is how radioactive they were, in the tank was about 740 PBQ. I don't know what PBQ is. Pascal somethings? Ugh. Sorry, guys, not a physicist. And Aritz, her physicist buddy, is really not available at this moment, so you, you're going to have to forgive me. The explosion gave rise to a radioactive plume, which dispersed into the atmosphere. About 2 times 10 to the 6th CI, which is 74 of those PBQ thingies, was dispersed by the wind, and caused the radioactive trace along the path of the plume. So, that was a bit... Um, Bit fun going on there. Carrying on, the terrain in which the radioactive trace was formed is forest steppe with uniform relief. About one third of the East Ural's radioactive territory is occupied by the forest, alternating with fields. There are also a few large virgin meadow tracts and a number of lakes and a river within the contaminated area. Hmm, that always is um quite fun. And here we go, because this is where the clinical sentiment of this article really hits in once you've heard the previous story. It was established during the first year after the accident that the total contaminated area comprised of 23,000 square kilometers. 217 settlements with a population of about 270,000 people were located in this territory. This territory acquired the official status of the contaminated area, and it is in this territory that the implementation of radiation protection measures for the population was considered indispensable. The territory of radioactive fallout also covered the facilities of the Mayak PA, which had to continue its activities together with the <clears throat> implementation of countermeasures. Secondary transport of radioactive fallout to Ozyorsk city adjacent to Mayak required protective measures for the residents which were insufficient. 
Insufficient, they said. It will be fun, they said. Have fun living in, well, industrial regions of the Soviet Union, they said. And while all of this was hidden from the population at whole, this nice little academical document also states the interesting facts of how the Soviets tried to settle all of this down. Quote, On October 10th to 20th, 1957, contaminated territories of the Chelyabinsk, Svetlovsk, and Tumen oblasts, up to 350 kilometers from the explosion site, were studied with exposure rate measurements and parallel soil sampling. The following pathways of public exposure were distinguished. External exposure and inhalation of the radioactivity from the plume at the time of its passage. External exposure from radioactively contaminated soil and surfaces of buildings and trees. Internal exposure due to ingestion of contaminated foodstuffs. Uh, I just become more and more joyful as darker as this episode gets. An automobile survey in November-December 1957 and aircraft survey in February 1958 provided more complete information on the distribution of the radioactive contamination. The first schematic map of contamination levels and borders of contaminated territory was obtained after three months, 25th January 1958, based on the results of this analysis of the contaminated area. In early 1958, a sanitary protection zone, SPZ, was established with a restrictive regime. Residents and economic activities were prohibited. So, that's when they kind of stopped all the situation, but then... Then we come to the nice little way how physicians basically explain to people that, no, yeah, you're, you're kind of not going anywhere, and you're not allowed to leave, but you will have to, you know, endure this anyways. Because, again, these dry texts together with, well, our previous information taken into account together, yeah, brings in some fun. Quote, Although the territory of the SPZ was taken under protection by the police, the population continued to use parts of the SPZ area due to the lack of clean pastures and hayfields. A lack of official information about radioactive contamination also served as one of the reasons why people continued to suffer. And further on, with which I'm going to end this first part, with a nice little extremely positive thing, quote, In 1963, in order to reduce radionuclide intake with food products to the residents of the non-resettled villages, collective farms were reorganized. Instead of small farms, large farms specializing in meat production with special conditions for keeping and feeding of animals were set up. The use of natural forage lands was limited. The production of grain and vegetables was banned, and the production of milk was limited. Hmm, nice. And this is extra fun, because if you remember 1963, yeah, if you've heard about my episode on uh, on the animals, you know where this is going. Because even here, people just had to increase their meat production. And uh, with this ends the part one of our Mayak episode. I'll be releasing both parts simultaneously, because it has taken me a long time to produce this. But I just think that, well, the second part is going to be about as long as this one, and putting them together in a single episode is a bit too much, and this has taken me a lot of research and work anyways, so... Ah, yeah. And it's not the most mentally cheerful thing anyways. So, well, please listen to this and the second part, which are probably going to be released simultaneously. Oh, and we are doing the webpage redesign and rework anyways. Still not into the new apartment, but working on it. 
It's gonna get better, anyways, comrades. I still have two other accidents to speak about. One of them got a person involved in Darwin Award. And I don't have much information on that. But, well, the story doesn't end with 1957. Because 2017, oh boy. That was one year of excellence and glory to the whole Mayak affair as well. Which is why I'd rather split this up a bit. On to part two. It should be up at the very same moment. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The Dark Myths Void. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at. Like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824.